Bitcoin changes absolutely everything. Hello, beautiful people. First things first, a big shout out to each and every one of you for tuning in. I hope you've been soaking up all the value we've been dishing out in every episode. Now here's the scoop. We're all about keeping things chill and ad-free. Yep, you heard it right. No pesky ads interrupting your listening experience. We're all in on this value-for-value model. Oh, but wait, there's more. Ever heard of Podcasting 2.0? We're talking about apps like Breeze and Fountain. Tune in with those apps and guess what? While you're enjoying our banter, you're earning sats. And here's a twist. You can use those sats to give us a boost or stream them our way. It's like high-fiving us through the airwaves. But hey, the fun doesn't stop there. You can also support the show by subscribing and sharing it with your friends and family. Alright folks, now it's showtime. What's in there? Only what you take with you. Hey Matt, welcome to the show. Really appreciate you making the time today. Uh, we can jump straight into it. And but before we do, like before we even cover off start nine, do you want to give like a brief background about yourself? Um, yeah, I, I can try to do something broad and keep it brief. Um, so thanks for having me on, first of all. Um, so about me, I uh, I'm a technologist first. Um, I you know, devote myself to solving problems in the world that I perceive to be um, important and that I think I'm well suited to help solve. Um, given my unique skill set and background and understandings, that happens to fall into um, what we do at Start Nine, uh, which is to try to uh, empower individuals and families primarily with uh, technology and tools that allow them to, you know, uh, opt out of um, a surveillance, privacy invading, censorship ridden, expensive, dangerous world that has become uh, the public internet. So uh, we and I think that people should be able to use computers um, without uh involving third parties and without relying on third parties and without paying them and being subject to their surveillance and censorship um and so i know i know this started with an about me section um <laughs> i care about those things um right. that's where that's where this comes from is that that to me is a very personal uh endeavor it's not just something i do for work um i yep. very much uh, wake up every morning and then want this to be, you know, a, a more independent and more dignified and more sovereign world for people. And so that's what I try to do. Um, prior to Start9, I tried to do that in other capacities, um, including, you know, going way back to campaigning for Ron Paul, um, mm. you know, back in the 2008 and 2012 <clears throat> election cycles, and really believing that um, I and others could affect real change through the political process. Um, I was disillusioned pretty quickly with that idea um, in the, you know, during those years and became a technologist uh, because I realized that uh, real, meaningful, mega political, long term change, um, while politics is, is, um, not uh, irrelevant, while well, the political process is not irrelevant, 
it is, in my opinion, a less important secondary, almost derivative process um, to technological change and uh, education. So I'm an educator as well. I um, literally did private tutoring for almost a decade in some capacity or another. Uh, I was also a high school track and field coach. Um, I love working with kids. I have kids. So I love teaching. I love educating. Um, and I love building. And I love doing all of that in the context of building a, awesome. a freer world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and at what point did you find Bitcoin like during that? Um, Bitcoin first crossed my radar um, in 2015, I think. And mm. like most people, I um, dismissed it. <laughs> uh, you know, you don't really know what Bitcoin is ever, I suppose. We're not quite there yet. But um, most people, when they first encounter it, uh, just kind of uh, shrug it off like I did. And um, it had to cross my radar a few times after that. Uh, over the years to actually kind of catch the bug and, and dive in, um, you know, at a, we'll call it like a snowball style pace, right? Like you dip your toes and then you learn a little more. And then um, next thing you know, you're, you know, yep. a little disheveled and you're not <laughs> shaving as much and sort of the world fades and becomes very orange. Um, and uh so that process for me actually had some concrete manifestations in that in 2017 in Denver, I was at a libertarian meetup and uh, a guy was giving a presentation there. His name was uh, Sean Owen. He was the then founder and CEO of a company called Salt Lending. Um, Salt stood for Secure Automated Lending Technology and was the first um, real implementation of a Bitcoin backed loan. So Salt was okay. interested in taking Bitcoin as collateral and providing fiat loans hmm. and then, you know, securing that Bitcoin appropriately. And then um, the borrower would make payments at an interest rate. And if they failed to make payments, well, the collateral was easily, you know, um, dispensable and we could make payments for them. I thought it was a, an interesting idea. And there have been multiple companies, by the way, that have now come out with similar business models um, all the way mm. from, you know, the, the bad and the ugly. Uh, but, you know, some of the more, I think, effective ones, at least now, are like Unchained Capital, I know, has a nice uh, lending product based on Bitcoin collateral. But anyway, Salt was intent on doing that. And at the time, I was just sort of you know, hitting stride with my orange pilling process and was like, Ooh, I want to get into that industry. I want to get involved with Bitcoin. And this seems like a useful business um, right. that who are hodlers might want some disposable, uh, you know, some liquidity in the form of fiat currency, but not want to sell the Bitcoin. Um, so I inquired with him as to how far along they were. And it turns out that they weren't very far along at all. And I felt mm perfectly capable of helping that company bring a product to market. I had the right background and skill set for it, both on the product front and mm. on the software development front. So I um, approached Sean and was like, hey, why don't you why don't you bring me in and let me build this thing for you? Because they didn't even have a CTO at the time. They didn't have anybody who was really working on it. They were yep. talking 
not builders, the, the founders. Of so um, I went into Salt and I built out uh, the engineering team from scratch, um, and I co-architected Salt's um, suite of technologies. Mm. I designed the product um, with a team, and ultimately built. I think a very solid piece of technology and product over there. Um, we did, we built something really, really um, sophisticated mm. and functional at, over at Salt. Unfortunately, Salt um, went off the rails in other ways. They were shitcoining with a token. The founders were more intent on you know raising the value of the token and staying out of jail than they were on building a uh, good product and mm. off and building. A quality business and ultimately um you know a, a rift grew yep. between me uh, i was the cto at the time and the ceo to the point where i was like look this isn't what i signed up for what you guys are doing is not good business and i don't want to be a part of it anymore so either we're going to do it my way or um i'm out and uh it was more complicated than that but ultimately it ended with me leaving right. and i left with the engineering team that i had hired and built um, not every single one of them, but the core of the engineering team departed Salt along with me, and we started Start9. Um, that's where Start9 came from. We were the, mm. the remnants of the Salt development team, uh, and we decided to do something very, very real and uncompromising this time. You know, do it our way. Right. Right. And, and like, so during that exit phase was that when the idea of starting start nine came about to be or was there like oh you guys left salt and then you had like a yeah. thinking about uh, yeah how, how, yeah what we to do next? No idea. we had yeah. no idea what we were going to do we only knew what we weren't going to do right what right. we were not going to do yep. was participate in this fiasco that had become the blockchain crypto token mm. world right mm. we Bitcoiners, not crypto people, um, and we certainly weren't grifters. And more and more salt was feeling like that, so we got out of town and figured out what we were going to do. Um, the first real idea that we had was to build a Bitcoin derivatives exchange. We wanted to uh, enable people to buy and sell options and futures on Bitcoin, and um, one, because we thought it was a good business, that it would make a lot of money. Two, because we figured there was a lot of market demand for a product like that. Uh, and three, because we felt like we had the technical expertise to actually build a very functional exchange product, uh, more so than other teams would be able to. Um, we, that only lasted for a couple of weeks. The idea itself only lasted for a couple of weeks because we realized that we were just joining the existing system, that we were going to be we were going to have to have lawyers and register with the CFTC. Like it was right. just like, we were just going to be a business that was touching Bitcoin. And yeah. we didn't want to be a business that was touching Bitcoin. We wanted to be a Bitcoin business, right? Mm -hmm. We wanted to be something mm -hmm. more than a fiat company. That's just tangentially affiliating with Bitcoin. Um, and again, we didn't really know what that was, but anyway, the way start nine came about, roughly speaking, there was a lot of kind of details and nuance to this, but roughly yep. speaking, it was Lightning Network was starting to get popular at the time. Mm. And um, Keegan, uh, one of the co-founders of Start9, um, had set up his 
Bitcoin node and Lightning node and um, was, you know, playing with the then beta version of the Lightning network daemon. And he was like, Matt, go set up your Lightning node. Let's try this thing out. You know, let's test it out. Mm. And um, I went to go set up my Lightning node. I'm a fairly competent person. I wouldn't yeah. say I'm a top tier sysadmin or DevOps engineer or anything like that, but I can figure things out and I can hack. Mm. Um, and I went to go set up my Lightning node and I was like, fuck this. It's going to take yeah. me days, right. maybe a week to do just to get it up and running, you know? And I was like, well, nobody's going to do it then. If I'm intimidated by this and I don't want to spend the time to do it, like nobody is going to take the time mm. to set this up, which means it's not going to take off, right? Like there needs to yep. be a tool, uh, a faster way to get up and running on Lightning. So um, I uh, started asking questions to the people who know more than me, which were my co-founders, um, primarily Keegan and Aiden McClellan, the two brothers. Uh, Aiden is now our CTO at Start9. And, um, and I was like, how can, how can we make this easier? Like, what is the problem here? Why is setting up a lightning node so hard, right? Part of the answer was because the upstream technology was immature. Lightning itself was just in beta and that makes it difficult. But the broader answer to that question is because self-hosting is hard. It's hard to self-host anything, right? You, you need to have command line skills and mm. sysadmin skills. You need to understand basic concepts like containers and network <laughs> infrastructure. And it's just like, it's way outside of the, the, the knowledge base of your average human being. And um, that was really the problem is that there just isn't a good tool set for a normal person to host their own software, right? Which is why everyone uses somebody else's computer for their computing needs, right? Like yes. when you open up your cell phone or your laptop and you install an app and you start using that app, you're just using, all you're really using is a remote control that's operating a server somewhere else, mm -hmm. you know, owned and operated by another person, another company, usually the company that built the app you're using. And they're just in total control, total control, right? They right. permission you, they authorize you, they watch you for either benevolent or malicious purposes. Either way, they're still watching you, right? They have to have the data. They're storing your data, so they're custodying it on your behalf. Um, it's just like this unbelievable scenario once people realize how computers actually work for most people yes. on a day-to-day -day basis. It's really this mind-blowing awakening. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and, but, sorry, yeah, you go. Yeah, no, please go ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, before we go, even like, yeah, I had a few questions regarding that, but I wanted to, like, when you guys had that idea, oh, it's hard to build this home server, were there any competitors that were doing it already in market? There was one company that was really attempting something meaningful in this area, which was Casa. Okay. Right? At the time, the Casa had the Bitcoin note. Now, there's also somewhat tangential technologies like Synology or TrueNAS, these things that have been around for a long time that are more traditionally known as like NAS devices, network attached storage devices, mm. where it's mostly just like, hey, here's this extra piece of storage on your LAN. And so you can use, you can connect to it from your laptop or desktop mm. to store data. That's kind of how they started. And more recently they've expanded into some of our kind of territory, which is, oh, you can use this device to actually run applications 
that then serve themselves as websites. And so we didn't really know a ton about them and we didn't just, really care to look too much. Yeah, just, yeah. just on NAS, now, let me see if I'm getting this right. It's, it's like one of those devices that you have at home and you're able to access it through your home LAN network, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. and what yeah, yeah and what's something like Start Nine. Yeah, is like yeah. network attached storage. It's like yeah. you're basically just attaching a storage device to the local network, mm -hmm. so that computers on the local network can can use it for storage. It's like a really kind of cool hard drive. <laughs> a yeah, network, yeah. It's a hard drive that's on the network, and you can access it. And anyway, that's the very rudimentary, boring explanation of them. You know, they're more yeah. sophisticated than that, and they're becoming increasingly sophisticated. They're becoming more and more like servers, you know, like mm. comprehensive servers. But that's really not how they were designed originally, and so it's kind of awkward, and it doesn't really, they're not optimized for that. So they're really fighting an uphill battle trying to expand into that uh, enhanced functionality. At the time, we were mostly looking at Casa as a uh, you know example or template of where we at least wanted to start. Um, and as soon as we started talking about this, because Casa at the time was just a Bitcoin node, that's all it was. You plug it into the wall, and it's just like up and running a Bitcoin node. You don't have to click anything. You don't have to install anything. It wasn't a general purpose server. It was just piece of software installed on a piece of hardware that you plugged into the wall and it started up, okay? And it started syncing blocks. And then it served a UI so that you could Access. view what was happening on that node. That's all it was. Um, and then right around that time, they were starting to come out with lightning as well. As in, they were basically just cramming lightning into the mm. same system. Again, no modularity, no broader, like, use case, it was just, you plug it in and now it's running Bitcoin and Lightning. <laughs> and we were like, well, that's a really naive way to build a server. It's just like, okay, just keep cramming pre-installed hardware onto the same device. It's not modular, it's not flexible, it's not extensible. It's just software on hardware with no configuration options or anything like that, which is a fine proof of concept, right? It's a fine, minimal viable product, but it is not an, a, a widely usable, um, you know, meaningful product. And so we scheduled a meeting with the CASA guys, who at the time and still I think is Jameson Lopp and Nick Newman. Jameson was the CTO, Nick Newman was their head of product at the time. And the CEO, I didn't even I didn't know who that was or anything. But anyway, Keegan and I, scheduled a meeting with Jameson and Nick in Denver. Uh, and we went out to dinner and we asked them pretty point blank. We were like, what are your plans with the CASA node? Because we are interested in either one, helping you guys build it. Like we're interested in joining. We like what you're doing. We think it's very interesting. Or two, building something similar and competing essentially depending mm. on what you guys are thinking right do you are you do you care about this product are you planning to keep it going do you want to work with us you know it was a it was a friendly heads up we're interested in what you're doing let's figure out how we can either work together or not type of meeting and during that meeting it became very clear very quickly that they were not interested in what they were building at all neither one of them seemed interested in the cosm node the more we talked about it the more disinterested they seemed. We were like, so are you going, do you have plans to you know, build this interface? Do you have plans to add, you know, like 
data storage and messaging applications, or are you just sticking to Bitcoin and Lightning? You know, because technically speaking, a little server like this could run all sorts of cool stuff. It does, doesn't need to just be a Bitcoin node and a Lightning node. It could be a general purpose personal <laughs> server. Um, do you have any, you know, ambition to do that or plans to do that? And basically they were just like, I don't know, maybe not really. I don't know. They, they just weren't interested in talking about it. Right. And so we left there and we were like, okay, I guess we're going to go build it because they don't really seem interested in, in working with us or working on what we want to work on. Mm. Sure enough, about two months later, Casa made the announcement that they were abandoning the node product line altogether uh, and focusing on software as a service for mm. um, and service as a service, like providing multi-sig you know, very white glove, hands-on wealth management and inheritance services, which is a perfectly fine business and business model, but not at all what we wanted to pursue. And so we were right about the meeting. They just weren't interested in the thing that they had been building and they abandoned it. So we went full steam ahead. And from the beginning, from the very beginning, we knew we were not building a Bitcoin and Lightning node. We, we knew right out of the gate that if we solved the problem of making it really easy for somebody to get up and running with a Bitcoin and Lightning node, if we're clever, solving that problem should solve that problem for pretty much any piece of software under the sun. Because mm. all software has common denominators. They all, there's similarities, right? They're all very different from each other, but there's also similarities. First of all, they're all software. Okay. Like they all need to run on hardware. They all need an operating system. And so we set out to find the commonalities of basically all self-hosted software. And then we set out to find the differences between all self-hosted software such that we could make them configurable, right? To right. essentially empower the user to own, operate, administer any piece of software in the simplest, most efficient way possible. And we didn't, we didn't know anything. I mean, we knew some things, but like, we really had to figure this out and it's been almost four years and we still haven't fully figured it out, but we are getting very close. Right, right, right. And uh, I mean, uh, one analogy that you sort of mentioned uh, in one of, uh, one of the videos that I was watching on in your earlier talks is uh, in early days, Microsoft and Apple, they, they sort of saw this problem. Uh, and they had to build a UI to, uh, they had to build their existing uh, navigation per se uh, of home computers, right? And that's how what Start9 like, is doing, but for cloud computer, uh, for cl home servers, not cloud computing, yeah. home servers. Yeah, um, you can call it cloud computing as long as you are specific that it is personal cloud computing. Yes. Um, most people, when they say cloud computing, what they mean is, using somebody else's computer to administer my data, store my data so that I can access it on multiple devices. We're applying that same model to the home awesome. server. So that you don't need to use it on somebody else. You do it for yourself. You provide cloud services for yourself. Um, anyway, the, the, the um, corollary to Apple and Microsoft is that, you know, back in the seventies, um, and even before to a degree, you know, as the personal computer was becoming, you know, viable, right. As mm. computers were shrinking from the size of a room to the size of a desk and people were starting to wonder, well, maybe everyone will have one of these things. 
right? Mm. Maybe every family will have a computer. And that was like a crazy idea. Um, as the hardware became smaller, more efficient and cheaper, there was still this inherent limitation of technical expertise, right? Bringing the computer, the personal computer to the masses was not just a hardware problem. It was a software problem. People had to know how to use the computer. Uh, they needed an interface mm. to use it. And before, you know, some of the later IBMs and then eventually, you know, Windows and eventually, you know, the Apple II, prior to that, the way that you interfaced with a personal computer was a command prompt, yeah. right? Like it was super geeky and hobbyist and nobody could do it. And it just, it just was off limits to people. What enabled computers to go mass market and take over the world and change human society forever mm. was really two things. One was hardware that was small enough and efficient enough and cheap enough to run in a home. And two was an operating system. In this case, a couple different operating systems, competing right. ones that enabled the, an average person to actually intuit and use mm. the computer that was now affordable. Um, and those ended up being the biggest companies in world history. That simple idea of bringing the personal computer to the masses through the use of an operating system and commodity hardware resulted in the largest companies the world has ever seen in the form of Apple and Microsoft. Mm. We're doing the same thing. We don't expect to be the biggest company the world has ever seen because the world is different now. I don't want yep. anyone to be as big as those companies. <laughs> you know, right? yeah, we're, we're trying yeah, to build yeah. a world that impossible. Okay. We're trying to help mm. build that. It makes becoming that big impossible, but we're conceptually doing the same thing. And we think that there is the possibility of building a very big and lucrative company out of it. Um, even though it won't be Apple size ever by design. Yep. Um, but we're doing the same thing that they did. We're just doing it for a different kind of computer because back then a computer was a computer was a computer, right? Like your personal computer, may possibly have been duly functioning as a server, right? It was connected yeah, right. on a network to other computers and each was sort of the same. It was mm. a very flat architecture. The original internet was very just like, you spin up a computer and you can use it for client things, you can use it for server things, and it kind of serves this dual purpose. Mm. And I think what they realized pretty early on, Apple, Microsoft, and Oracle, and all the rest, was that nobody cared about the server aspect of it. Nobody cared about the engine. Nobody cared about how it worked, right? Under the hood. They only cared about what they could see. And so if we abstract away all the server infrastructure, the network architecture, the, you know, all the confusing stuff that people are just like, I don't care. I just want it to work. If we abstract that away, then, and we put them into a, you know, a data center, and we build a server farm and data center, um, then it's an incredibly powerful position to be in because you are basically at the center of all digital interactions. From that moment on, as the cloud began to evolve, which began as early as the 90s, really, mm -hmm. um, it's like things like AOL, where people were primarily, not primarily, but when they got online, right? When they launched AOL and it did that little dial up noise and they got online, they were really no longer using their computer. Their computer right. was just a portal, 
a browser, right? It was a portal to a bunch of other computers that were not their own. And that was the beginning of a long road to now basically everything you do is always just connecting to this third party server. Um, yeah. Yeah. You want to like, I mean, sort of break it down a bit more to someone that's not tech savvy. So it's like, it's, it's so we have this car, we are on a laptop or a mobile, but all, and we're just using it as a remote control or just a screen that is connecting to someone else's computer and, yep. uh, and all the data is stored there per se. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. Yeah, um, it really isn't much more complicated than that. Yeah. Um, you know, you picture like we're having this call right now. Okay, yep. so I'm here, you're here. Mm -hmm. And the only reason that we are able to talk right now is because there's a server right here. Okay, this is the third thing in the middle. So the signal is going from my computer to the server and then being bounced off the server to your computer. These two computers don't talk directly to each other. Yeah. They're going through a server. And there have been multiple people, companies, organizations who have tried to eliminate servers. There's a whole movement called serverless, right? It's like, hey, let's okay. just connect clients to clients. Yep, we yep. think it's a horrible idea for a general architecture of mankind's computing infrastructure. Um, servers serve an incredibly important purpose, which is that they are always there, always running, always available, right? If I'm you and I were having this conversation, computer to computer, mm. we couldn't be recording it except on our computers, which would yep. mean that we both would need to have like meaningful storage space on our computers, mm. right? The mm. server is going to be what records and stores this conversation. Um, if, if you were on a call with somebody, um, or let's say they uh, want to send you a text message and you are currently in the mountains, and you have no cell phone service and somebody sends you a text message without a server, you would never ever get that text message because when somebody sends you a text message, they're not sending it to your phone. Your phone yeah. might be turned off. It might be off. They're sending that text message to a server that is never turned off. It's always online. It's always waiting for text messages to arrive. And that's where somebody is sending the text. Only when your phone is online and connected, does it then receive the text. Mm. So the server is what guarantees connectivity. And without that guarantee, the internet would fall apart. If individuals and families and businesses didn't have a guarantee that data would be saved, that text messages would be received, you know, that the money I sent you would actually arrive without yeah. those guarantees, nobody could trust computers. And that is what role servers play. They are the guarantee, or as mm. close as you can get to a guarantee, that um, digital communications and data will succeed and persist. Um, and so you're not going to do away with the server. You shouldn't try to do away with the server. Instead, what we have attempted to do is make everyone their own server, right? Is mm. Instead of everyone using one giant server in the middle of the room, or in the middle of the world, right? So everyone is using, we'll call it a Google server. Yep. That means that all of our text messages, all of our phone calls, all of our private files and data, everything that we do and everything that we are is being processed through, intermediated by 
custodied on a Google server, which as the world becomes increasingly digital is an existential threat. Okay. It's not just some inconvenience. It's not just like, well, I have nothing to hide. So I don't care if Google sees what I do. Mm. That is an incredibly naive statement because when somebody has that kind of vision and power over everything that is important to you, which is mostly on a computer these days, right? I hate to say that, but like yeah. we live on computers, we live on the internet, right? If someone cuts you off of the internet, you're in trouble. Mm. That's not inconvenience. You might not know how to get home. I don't even know if people yeah. know directions anymore. You know, it's all yeah. maps. Um, it's a big deal when mm. somebody can completely you know, control or cut you off from uh, the internet, from your data. Um, you can be extorted, right? They can. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyway, so yeah. the problems with it are fourfold, in my opinion. Um, okay. You have one, which is the one that a lot of people think of first, which is invasion of privacy. This mm. idea of surveillance, okay, which more and more is becoming a thing. Okay. A lot of people a few years ago would have been very quick to say they're like, well, I have nothing to hide. So I don't care if Google knows everything. Even those people are now starting to be like, what's going on here? Like everything I say in front of a smart speaker shows up on my Facebook ad, you know, listings. It's like something weird is happening here. Like people are starting yeah. to realize that they're like a rat in a cage. Okay. Like everything you do is watched, monitored, tracked, surveilled, recorded, analyzed, and sold. And while that may not have been a problem at first, just wait till the wrong people get their hands on all of that and it'll start being a problem for you, okay? Like surveillance yeah. is a problem. Even if you don't think it is and even if you haven't been affected by it yet, it is an undeniable problem and infringement upon individual rights. Um, number two um, is censorship, right? When you are communicating on and through somebody else's server, they can just, cut you off. Um, it yep. can be through blatant, obvious deplatforming, which is actually not how it's usually done. It is more often done through algorithmic censorship, uh, shadow banning, right? Mm. So if I am saying things that the algorithm doesn't like, it just happens to not show up on as many people's news feeds, right? Yes. Like deplatforming mm. is actually the last resort. Um, there are many layers of censorship that can take place where people don't even realize it's happening. Okay. It is, it is covert algorithmic censorship and often run by, um, AIs, not mm. humans. It's not even humans that are choosing like, Hey, let's censor Matt. It's just based in, based off of keywords and speech patterns. Yep. It's just like, Ooh, let's, let's make that louder. Ooh, let's make that softer. Okay. Mm. Depending on what the narrative is, they can amplify and um, quiet down different um, words and, and uh, sentiments and ideas, which is again, extremely dangerous, okay? Like even if you haven't been personally affected by this, this is the effective elimination of freedom of speech, even if not in law or in, even if not in, um, in appearance. Yep, because that would sort of shape reality to like whoever's using the platform, right? Like it's like yeah. the the people in charge are able to amp up whatever 
whatever the mm-hmm. agenda is and yeah and yep put down the counter arguments against it and we've seen that with yeah with with covid yeah. lately and yeah, Look, yeah there's nothing wrong with curation okay mm-hmm. if someone wants to curate a news feed for themselves so that they only are exposed to one thing that is a person's right okay person the choice. they yep. need to be in control mm-hmm. if somebody else is curating your news feed if somebody else is determining what you see and don't see what you hear and don't hear then you aren't independent you are being manipulated to some degree and more, some people are more immune to it than others but on on the average people are highly affected by this type of um censorship mm. and i don't even want to just say censorship because it's also the opposite of censorship it's amplification right which is a form of censorship it, it's it's a it's a form of um forced curation right yes. i don't know if there's a singular word for this because it's both censorship and amplification are both incredibly dangerous mm. and unavoidable in the current model of computing. Like this is, has to happen. All the incentives point to this happening. And so you shouldn't be surprised that it's happening. The problem is not who's in charge or what their values are or anything like that. You can, I don't care if you swap one CEO for another CEO on the same technology, it, the same reality is going to play out, right? Like there's still going to be algorithmic um, amplification and censoring of different ideas. It's just which ideas are going to be censored and amplified changes, but it doesn't make it any less dangerous. Um, So anyway, that's number two, right? So number one was invasion of privacy and surveillance. Uh, Number two is censorship and amplification. Um, Number three is cost. Okay. So, when you are using somebody else's computer for basic things like text messaging, phone calls, data storage, they're getting a piece. They're making money off of mm. you somehow. Okay. If you're not paying them directly, then they are monetizing your data, right? They are selling something about you to somebody, probably outside of your awareness. Mm. Um, and probably things that you don't want them selling, as in they're not just looking at the things you say on Twitter, they're also looking at your DMs, right? Scanning your emails and stuff like that. Like it's it's the collection. So this goes back to number one, but point three is about the monetization of that data. Hmm. And if you do encounter a company or product that is not monetizing your data, right? That has set rules for itself, either in its bylaws or even in the technology itself, that prohibit it from collecting, analyzing, and monetizing your data, then they are definitely charging you a subscription. Because otherwise, right. how are they how are they alive? Right? Mm. It doesn't make any mm. sense. They have to make money somehow. Mm. So you are paying for this right to use their computer. Right? You're paying yes. for the right to be spied on and censored. You're paying for it. Mm. Uh, either with money on a monthly subscription basis or by allowing them to sell your data, okay? Which right. is just expensive. It's expensive, right? And mm-hmm. the more people stand up against invasion of privacy, the more expensive it's going to get from a monetary standpoint. Because companies are less capable of monetizing your data today than they were five years ago. There is more restrictions in place now. There's more awareness of data collection uh, practices now. And so companies are leaning more and more on the recurring revenue software as a service subscription model. And we predict that within 
a few short years, um, more and more of the apps on your phone and computer are going to be subscription-based. The free tiers, which most people are on, right? Mm -hmm. Make money by showing you ads. Those free tiers are going to get smaller and smaller. Uh, and the, the paid subscriptions are, are going to get steeper and steeper to where even a normal person for normal use case might find themselves on like tier two of the subscription paying $10 a month right. for some note-taking app on their phone. Mm -hmm. um, so it's expensive. It's inefficient from an economic standpoint, right? Like economies should be efficient. And this is yes. not efficient because it involves middlemen. Third parties are always... Uh, drainers of the economy, not, yep. not users. Um, so that's number three. Uh, and number four is the one that people do not think about very often and might be ultimately the biggest, <laughs> worst part of all of this, which is the honeypotting of data, of everyone's data mm -hmm. onto central servers, um, thus making them very attractive targets for attack. Yep. When you and me and everybody else puts all of our incredibly private, sensitive information on Dropbox, for example, mm. everyone on earth wants to hack Dropbox because it is just full of data that mm. is extremely valuable and could even be used for extortionary purposes, right? Imagine if yes. Dropbox is hacked and you have stored a bunch of photographs on Dropbox mm. that you don't want people to see, okay? Well, somebody hacks Dropbox and um, they know who you are. They know everything about you. They send you an email. Maybe they call you and they say, hey, uh, we just hacked Dropbox and you know we see all these pictures that we're sure these people in your life wouldn't want you to see. Right. So you have 24 hours to send us $50,000 worth of Bitcoin or else. Um, and this can be done, by the way, at scale. That can be done using bots. Mm. It doesn't even need to be humans looking through it. So yep. the idea here is that when you put everyone's sensitive data on a server, it is only a matter of time before that server gets hacked. It's an inevitability because hacking a server has nothing to do with encryption. It has nothing to do with cybersecurity. Hacking a server has everything to do with operational security. There is somebody yep. at Dropbox that has the keys to those servers. Mm. All you have to do is compromise that person, bribe them, blackmail them, kidnap them, put a gun to their head. Doesn't matter. Extort them. It's just the cent yeah, a central party and yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Centralized systems are vulnerable to attack. Yep, yep. I just wanted to say is like, oh, uh, so they have like uh, someone that has access to the Dropbox data can also use another so there's your other information probably on google and then they can make links to who's this and have mul and there's multiple so like there's google there's dropbox there's you have microsoft and they can link up these different get access to different sorts of data and link up build a whole profile on you right um i mean depending on what access that person has for instance if you are a government if you're a powerful government um, in any country, for that matter, you can pretty much just walk into a Google and Dropbox, Dropbox office and just say, give me the data. That doesn't even require a bench warrant in the United States anymore. And the United States was one of the like leaders of yeah. kind of, you know, 
Fourth Amendment rights where, you know, uh, it's, it's the right to against illegal search and seizure. It's like in order to search your home, law enforcement or the government need to go to a judge who's supposed to be like, you know, a good person that has been elected and people like and think is mm -hmm. moral and get a warrant. They have to present evidence that's like, hey, we think Matt has such and such in his house and, you know, we want to go look for it. And then the judge says, okay, you know, you've, you've convinced me that, you know, we should violate Matt's property rights right now and that you can go to his property and search it. That is not the case with data on a third party server. The Patriot Act changed that. It's called the third party doctrine. And it basically says the second you choose to upload your data to somebody else's server, you have forfeited your fourth amendment rights. That data is no longer your property and it can be searched, seized, by law enforcement with no warrant and without your knowledge. They can just walk into Dropbox and say, yep. give me all of Matt's pictures, all of his files, all of his mm -hmm. data, everything you know about him. Then they go to Google and say the same thing. And Google can't tell me, Dropbox can't tell me, it's all under gag order and it didn't require a warrant from a judge. Yeah. Again, yeah. if this hasn't affected you, congratulations. But, but it's a possibility, is yeah. yeah. Is, yeah. It is an un unthinkable crime. Um, mm. That is commonplace. Yeah, Matt, you did mention that you, yeah, time poor and and there's multiple. I mean, we've not even touched upon start. <laughs> I nine, can go right? for a little, like, yeah. So you can keep going for some time. Okay, sure. Okay, let's, do, let's try for thirty minutes. For another thirty? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. It's awesome. Uh, so then. Yeah, I mean, do, do you want to, because I think in one of your talks, I, you nicely broke down or briefly broke down personal computing, cloud computing, and then what you guys are doing. And you, uh, I'll, I'll let you cover what's the third type of computing. For sure. Um, we call it sovereign computing. And you can think of it as cloud computing with a personal cloud, right? Um, and a lot of times when people think about cloud, mostly what they're talking about is data storage. That is a very common correlation that people draw. They say, ooh, it's in the cloud. What they mean is I'm storing something in the cloud, okay? What most people don't realize is that the cloud is not just storing data. The cloud is a name for a server. It's a name for a computer that is running somewhere that processes data. It doesn't just store data, right? The cloud is what connects me and you together right now. We are talking through a Jitsi server, right? Yep. There's a server somewhere owned by Jitsi, the company, and we are literally just talking through it, okay? Um, and that is also part of the cloud. So once you expand the cloud to mean all of computers that are processing, relaying, and storing data, then you have the right idea of what the cloud is. You were gonna say yeah. something? Yeah, I just wanted to point out one analogy that you also, yeah, in one of your talks I heard is that, people that are using WhatsApp is like having a WhatsApp employee sitting in your living room. Yep. And yeah. you're, you're just passing messages through them. Yep. So if you want to text somebody on WhatsApp, you're basically texting a WhatsApp employee and saying, Hey, can you send this message to my wife? And then the WhatsApp employee looks at it and goes, mm, okay, yeah, that looks fine. Right. Uh, and you haven't broken any laws recently. You seem to be a, a an A plus person and, you know, you paid your monthly bill or you've allowed us to mine your data. So yeah, we'll forward the message for you. 
Mm-hmm. It's, it is incredibly undignified, right? At, at nothing else, if you don't care about security and privacy and uh, cost and you know risk of cyber terrorism and all the rest, if you don't care about any of that, just think about how undignified and childlike it is to have to raise your hand and ask permission for literally everything you do on a computer. And we don't realize with every button we push that that's what's happening, but that is what's happening. We are not in control of our own computers. Everything we do is some authority saying, okay, I'll let you do that right now. And they say yes so often that we forgot they're sitting there. But everything you do is like Mm -hmm. having an employee from every single one of those companies in your home and you're just repeatedly asking them for permission. And of course, they're listening to everything, cataloging everything, analyzing everything, selling everything. And it's just, it's so embarrassing. Like I'm embarrassed for humanity right now, right? Like I feel embarrassed, ashamed mm-hmm. when I use a computer in that way because I'm an adult and I don't need to ask for permission to text my wife. It's yep. incredibly yep. undignified and shameful. And so we're trying to fix it. And the way that you fix that is by replacing Signal and Slack and WhatsApp and every other third-party service provider, whatever service they happen to be providing, okay? It could be messaging services, video conferencing services, data storage services, password management services, social media services, you name it. All the things that you do on a computer and on the internet, you can do yourself. You can do it without them. You do not need anybody. Okay, you can grow your own food, so to speak. This is the homestead. This is digital homesteading. This is um, great. The the way that like Apple and Google or Amazon is operating is that they're trying to get more of these devices in your homes, right? And and they're sort of collecting, analyzing data on you. Uh, And what Start9 is doing is completely opposite to that. Per se, uh, completely opposite. Yes, and not that like we're choosing not to collect data or something like that. Like mm. we can't. We've designed technology that eliminates the middleman, including us. We're not a middleman. We can't be, mm. uh, but nobody else can be. Right. What we're doing is we're making it possible, really, for the first time ever, for a normal person a non-technical, normal person to be able to use computers across multiple devices in different parts of the world, wherever they are, Mm. without the involvement of a third party, a trusted third party. Um, It was inevitable. The idea that humans were going to forever have their whole digital world intermediated by a few giant corporations, all subject to Mm. state power was a ridiculous idea. I find the idea of cloud computing and what is currently the public internet to be ridiculous, to be a blip on the radar of human history. It's only been around for like 30 years at the most. Really, it didn't pick up in earnest and reach its current form until the Facebook era, okay? It wasn't really until 
the mid 2000s that mm -hmm. the modern cloud really began to emerge. So we're only talking about less than 20 years this has been around. Do you know what 20 years is in the context of human history? Right? It's yeah. it's it's mm. not even a it's not even a, a an evening. It's nothing. It, it's mm. like one minute in the course of my day, you know? Yep. It's like, oh, that was a mistake, right? I <laughs> dropped that yeah. thing, let's pick it up, right? This is just a mistake. Mm. And what's crazy about that is that this little mistake got really out of control really fast, you know? Like this little mistake resulted in extremely powerful people and powerful organizations that, that wield enormous political, even military might in the world right now. Mm. Um, so while it may have been a little mistake from a historical perspective, like in a time frame perspective, it was actually a really big mistake. And I don't think that we have even come close to recognizing the consequences of this mistake yet, right? Like we're still drunk. Humanity is mm. still drunk on the emergence of the internet and cloud computing of computers in general, right? Computers have only been around for a generation and a half in their current form. Like if you went back to 1980, even 1990 and showed somebody a modern iPhone, they would just call you an alien. Like it, it's insane yeah. what has yeah. happened over the last 30 years and we're drunk on it. We're partying. It's like this huge, like new world that we've discovered and everyone's enamored. And, you know, we're all just like in the beat of the music right now. And what happens I... is there's a hangover. Okay. The bill comes due at the end. <laughs> Who said that? There was a, it's a very famous. Okay. Um, so I don't know at what point I cut out, but I'll just resume the train of thought and hope we didn't miss too much. Yep. Um, I was talking about how, you know, cloud computing, the modern cloud, this whole centralized model of digital infrastructure um, has only been around for a very brief time in the context of history. Yes. Uh, but it was a very meaningful mistake that we do not yet understand the, the consequences of. Um, right. We are, uh, we're still living it up. Mm. And I think that we are coming close now to the party being over. Mm. to the bill coming due. Yep. And I think that there's going to be sticker shock. I think people are going to be shocked at how expensive this party was. Mm. And when I talk about expensive, I'm not just talking about um, money, like economic inefficiency, or even more trivial things like, you know, um, subscription fees or minor surveillance or invasion of privacy. I, when I say cost, I mean, We've really gotten ourselves into a pickle here, okay? We have, as a species, granted enormous, unprecedented power to an incredibly small number of people. And I think the consequences of this could extend to the range of, of loss of life in mass, right? Like, I fear that this kind of power this highly centralized, I, I struggle to understand how it doesn't lead to catastrophe, not just cost, but right. like real, real socio-political 
economic global catastrophe. Like we're building, we're, we're, we're inching closer and closer towards um, a, a sort of cyber Armageddon type of event. And I don't just mean like singular event. I mean like a prolonged series of yes. attacks and failures and um, like intentional stuff too, right? Like um, people don't realize that the internet is really kind of a war zone. <laughs> and yep. that these combatants are becoming increasingly antagonistic and powerful mm. and people just get caught in the crossfire, right? right. Uh, they're just civilians, but you're in a war zone. And I don't think we really realize that yet. Um, so, so what we are doing, cause I'll try to bring this back here. I don't yep. want to be yep. all doom and gloom because we, I'm very optimistic ultimately, um, is we're trying to get people out of the war zone, mm. right? That's really what this boils down to is if you were in a city and that city was being bombarded, mm. it was under siege, um, and you knew that it was under siege or you knew that it was going to be under siege, what would you do with you and your family? You'd leave. Yes. You'd yeah. leave the city. You'd leave the war zone and you would go somewhere that's safe. Ideally, you'd go somewhere that affords you the same conveniences, luxuries, lifestyle mm. as the city you left but you might even be willing to accept a slightly lower degree of convenience mm. in order to be safe, right? Because yep. that's most important. And that is ultimately what we are doing. We are, we've created a, another city, <laughs> another mm. place, or uh, let me be more, let me let the analogy hold a little better. We have made it possible for you to create your own little piece of land somewhere. Right. It's right. not another city because another city would just come under siege as well. Right. That's what yep. platform hopping is. You move yes, from, yes. you move from uh, WhatsApp to signal to the, oh, they keep turning bad. Every city you go to is going to come under attack. That's the mm. nature of, of war. So get out, get out of town, get out of all the cities and just go build yourself a little cabin in the woods. Okay. That's what we are except our cabin is very high tech. Okay. Like <laughs> yeah. you're not giving up a lot of luxuries when you move to this cabin, you are, you got it all, but you're nice. completely safe. Nobody even knows you're there. Okay. Mm. And what this, so abandoning the analogy here and actually, you know, explaining what this means, it means in its most basic form, getting a device in your home. That's it. A server. Okay. It means getting a server and slowly, no need to rush, right? Yes, the city is under siege, but look, it's okay. Like there's fortifications. It's not going to blow up tomorrow. So you don't right. need to act. You don't need to panic. You don't need to think that, you know, tomorrow I have to get off every cloud server. I need to get out or I'm going to get hacked and all that. You don't need to think like that. Just mm. take the first step. Start making preparations. Start getting your family ready, your friends ready, and get ready to get out of the city because it is getting worse and it's not going to get better. So what that means is getting a server. Step one, get yourself a home server, okay? Step two, start identifying parts of your life that are more important than other parts. When I say your life, I mean your digital life, okay? Yep. We recommend password management. That is probably the most important part of your entire digital existence is your passwords. Your passwords are your access to every other part of your digital existence, okay? Authentication, the ability to authenticate yourself to different 
digital resources is paramount to your digital life and health. So the first thing that you should do when you get your personal server is run your own password manager on that server. Mm -hmm. This enables you to get onto the internet, go to different websites, log into different places, right? Whatever you happen to be using or logging into in such a way that all those passwords, all your passwords, and they should all be different by the way, and a password manager makes that possible. If you're not using a password manager, you're either memorizing one or three passwords that you use for everything, or you have some extremely boring, you know, little algorithm that you slightly tweak the password for each, each website or something. And everyone thinks they're super clever when they come up with that, but it's not <laughs> secure and it's not clever. Um, you want to be secure on the internet. You need to have long, complex, very different passwords for every single website that you log into. And the only way to do that is to run a password manager. Yep. And if you want to be really secure about it, you run your own password manager, which means no matter where you go in the world with your cell phone or your laptop, if you have a website that you need to log into, your cell phone or laptop will reach out to the yeah. server in your home mm -hmm. and get the password that it needs so that you can enter it into that website. Yep. Matt, I had one question, right? Like, so now I have this server in my home and my password manager is on there. Uh, but maybe the reliability, I mean, it's say the reliability of power and internet connection is 99, 95%. Uh, can I have this home server also sitting at a different location with the same sort of same sort of information, same sort of data available? So nothing prevents you from having multiple servers, okay. but there is currently in our product development, no automatic integration between those multiple servers, mm. but we are working on that, right? That is a, we'll call it like necessary, but also advanced piece of functionality, which is that you could have a server in your home and a server at your office and a server at, you know, your friend's house somewhere else. And that these servers would be aware of each other such that if any one was having problems, the other two could pick up the slack and, and you would never notice that anything was wrong. Right. That is possible. We are building that, but that isn't where we start, right? That's like really advanced stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. So yeah, the way that you handle it currently hmm. is twofold. So like I use this password manager for myself and I have never been cut off from my passwords ever. Hmm. And the reason for that is twofold. One is because it doesn't really go down hardly ever, right? Like we've built pretty solid software. It's very reliable. I don't want to say it's perfect, right? Nothing is. Um, it will go down from time to time. And like, again, time to time, meaning like maybe once or twice a year for a few minutes or something, it could go down. Your internet could go out. Um, you know, mm -hmm. if your power goes out and you don't have the server on a UPS, then it will also go down and restart, but it will restart when the power comes back on and you'll have access again. Yep. So just like anything else, it's subject to, you know, physical power and physical, you know, ethernet and cable lines <laughs> that if yeah. they're cut, then the server's cut off. Yeah. One thing that I was sort of thinking is like, instead of me trusting Apple or Google with my information, I could sort of have my home server set up. And then I could have my brother set up uh, his home server and I can share that same. And we could have his information on my home server, my information on him, his as yes. a backup. 
Yeah. Absolutely. And backups are critical to, to self-hosting, right? The idea of being your own service provider, your own cloud provider means that, you know, if there's a flood at your house or a fire or the hard drive just fails, right? Mm. That you don't lose all your data. I mean, this is, you know, like this requires a degree of responsibility, right? Which in the past, again, required a lot of responsibility. Like you had to be an incredibly tech savvy and very dedicated person to do what I'm describing. The whole reason for Start9's existence, what we are here for, is to take that incredibly hobbyist, esoteric, high skill set, um, you know, all that is required to run a home server and administer it properly, and we are making it easy enough for anyone to do. And it's getting easier by the month, right? Like we still have a long way to go. It's very yep. good right now, but we still have a long way to go. Um, but nothing really compares. What we have done is by quite a bit, in fact, the easiest, most reliable, most secure way to run a home server. There are other ways to run a home server, but anyone who takes the time to do their research is going to find out that we have done it in a way that is like reliable and secure. Um, it's very easy to do things in a naive, simple, insecure, mm -hmm. not private way. It's very hard to do them right, and we are doing it right, and that takes time. Um, so backups are essential. The way that you back up your home server with Start OS, which I don't even know if I've said that word yet. Start OS is our operating system. Start 9 makes Start OS. Um, the way that you do backups with Start OS is pretty straightforward. You plug a drive into your server and click backup, and it backs it up to the drive, and then you take that drive out and put it wherever you want, somewhere safe. Or you can back up your server uh, over the air to another device that is also on the same home network. So you can back up your server to your laptop, to your desktop, or to your NAS if you have a NAS device. Um, and that's currently what backups look like, is you have to click backup, tell it where to backup to, and then it creates a fully encrypted backup on that other device. And In the next major release of Start OS, mm -hmm. you will be able to schedule, in very simply, automatic backups Nice. In a very granular way, like you'll be able to choose, you know, I want this set of data backed up to my brother's server every yeah. day at two o'clock in the morning. And I want right. this set of data backed up to my other server, you know, or at my office, office. Yeah. every day at three o'clock in the morning. And these backups will run automatically and to nice. any destination you want. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I mean, another aspect that you like I came across you speaking about is building individuals and then building for businesses is one and and then and the other was building safety nets and backdoors so you start building out there yeah. yeah so let's talk about the individual versus business use case um, we started with the individual and familial use case right we, we built start OS for individuals and families um, and we will always build for individuals and families. Um, that is humans, okay? Um, but there's this other kind of entity that humans do, right? They, they create enterprises, businesses. And we think that that's very important, obviously. Um, and it's also a lot more, in, in some cases, mission critical, right? Businesses view some of their digital infrastructure 
in a much more like mission critical kind of a way than an individual might, right? Like if you're currently don't have internet for a few hours, you're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. But if your business doesn't have internet for a few hours, it could be extremely costly, right? It could be a very big deal. So businesses more so than anyone um, have a need for very powerful, very robust, very reliable, fast uh, digital infrastructure. And as a result, they are um, paying a ton for third-party providers to give them those guarantees, right? To, to give them those, okay, here's your, you know, we, we make the backups for you. We make the connections for you. We do all this stuff for you. And, you know, there's two costs to that. One is you're going to pay us a fortune every month to do it. And number two is, uh, you know, we sort of hold the keys to your business. Like yeah. it's kind of dangerous, right? Like mm. that company now has total access to basically everything you do in your business. Um, and so we know it's very important to support the business use case, but we also knew that the business use case needed more assurance than an early stage beta product could provide, right? To just being honest, we have not made a product yet that is good enough for businesses. No. It's not, it's lacking in features. It's lacking in reliability. Don't get me wrong. It's very featureful and it's very reliable, but businesses mm. have like perfection style needs. They need to know mm. that their data is, they need to know that their websites are going to be accessible. Um, they need to know that they can call someone at three o'clock in the morning if something goes wrong and that they're going to get that support immediately. Whereas individuals don't have those kinds of expectations. So we're working our way towards businesses. We're never going to abandon the individual and the family, but yeah. we are getting very close now to a product that is going to be suited for many businesses, not all of them yet, right? It's going to take yeah. a while before we can work our way up to businesses that have a thousand people and you know big needs. And maybe we'll never even get there. Maybe that's not even a market that we want or need, or they don't need us. Right. Right. But we are definitely approaching a, a day now where we're going to be ready for businesses that have like, I don't know, 10 to 50 people, right? right. That kind of right. like small business, but growing. And, you know, they're getting fleeced on software subscription fees. Yes. Right. If you have a business of like 50 people, you're paying a very serious amount of money every month for Dropbox and Slack and Google Workspace and mm. LastPass and Zoom and Calendly and all these things that everyone uses in business, every single one of those costs per user per month. And yeah. it adds up. It adds a big website hosting. You know, you want to host your website for the world to see that's going to cost you per month. And this mm. stuff is not cheap and it's getting more expensive because people are becoming more and more dependent on it. So right. it's getting extortionary. And there's also less and less companies providing these services. Mm. So they're able to raise prices, right? It's becoming borderline monopolistic. Yes. And so, and so businesses are just getting eaten alive by these fees. Mm. I can go into a business soon, not yet, but soon. And very honestly tell them, I can take your monthly software subscription fees down by 95%. I can take, wow. you're currently paying eight, let's use a nice round number. You're currently paying $10,000 a month in mm. software fees. I can bring it down to 500. I can't eliminate it all yet because the software just isn't there yet, but I can take your $10,000 a month and bring it down to 500. And as a bonus, 
bring all of your data back under your control. That's mm -hmm. not even the main reason you're going to do it. You're going to do it to save $9,500. <laughs> but you also now are not handing all of your sensitive company conversations and files and data and mm. everything over to Zoom, who's very openly spying on every single conversation that you have. They're just announcing that they're doing it. Yeah. And businesses are paying Zoom <laughs> a ton of money every month to have Zoom spy on their business. Yeah. And we can just eliminate it, right? Right now we're talking on a Jitsi server. But the other calls that I had today were scheduled by me sending out a link, a normal link, so that somebody could schedule a time on my calendar. Yep. They schedule a time and the times are, you know, blacked out by my availability. Like right. it's integrated yeah. with my calendar. They schedule a time and automatically it creates a room, just like a link like this, yes. where we can then go have a video chat. Every nice. single thing that I just said didn't touch a third party server and it works today and we're using it for start nine start nine is its own best customer right now right we have taken our software subscription fees down by approximately 70 percent from what they were already nice. and we're going to push for that next 20 to 25 before we release it to the rest of the world right we are at a point now where our monthly costs for all of our digital infrastructure is almost zero and it works just as good as it used to work when we were paying Zoom and when we were paying anybody else. Like I don't use Calendly. I use my own self-hosted Calend Calendly alternative and it works exactly the same and it's free for life. Okay. Very impressive. Yeah. yeah. So that's what we're doing as a company. That's where we're going as a company is we are going to, we're really going to help small businesses save a lot of money and tell all these companies that have just been living in their business to take a hike. And we think that mm. that's going to be a very appealing uh, pitch. And the way that what our involvement is, is that we're going to sell them the hardware yep. to run the software on, which they do not have to buy from us. Okay. Like start mm -hmm. OS is a free piece of software that you can download and install onto your own computer or hardware. Right. Okay. We don't even know you exist. You can use our software for free. Enjoy. There's no limitations. It's the exact same experience as if you bought it from us. Yep. But a lot of people don't have hardware already, or they don't have hardware that's good enough to satisfy their needs as a family or a business. And so they're going to buy something anyway. So we're like, well, why wouldn't you buy it from us? You yes. want, you want to use our software. You like what we do. We're not extorting the hardware fees. Like we buy wholesale and sell retail at the same price that you could buy it anywhere else. So why not buy it from us, right? It's supporting the project and you're going to buy something anyway. That's mm. number one. Number two is, like I said before, businesses need assurances. Yeah. We will be there for you, right? What you're getting with Start9 is you're going to eliminate 95%. You're going to eliminate $9,500 a month of software subscription fees. And you're going to replace it with, I don't know yet, some number amount per month to Start9 but not nowhere near 9,500 a month, a small fraction of that in order to get us, your technical experts, call us anytime, day or night, 24 seven, white glove concierge support. If you are having any questions, any issues, any challenges, anything with your self-hosted infrastructure or server, we are there for you 24 seven. We will make sure that it gets fixed immediately. Secondly, all your automatic backups that take place every day, 
We are going to provide cloud servers so that you can save those encrypted backups to our servers, which is perfectly fine. We don't know anything. It's fully right. encrypted. encrypted. We're just yep. providing the infrastructure so that you don't need to go pay Dropbox and Google Drive to store those encrypted backups. Yeah, very, so very impressive. Like, and and just to add to that is like, I'm running my, I'm running a, a start OS on an old laptop. And yeah, probably the only reason like someone from Start9 would know is because I've been reaching out over Telegram to like get support. <laughs> and, yeah. and 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 just to say like I, I've had multiple questions and they were all addressed like promptly. And that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. We take support very seriously because we know it's the only thing we can defend. Okay. Because mm. the prior world, the way that it did business was it lures you in and then traps you and then squeezes you for as long as it possibly can for as much money as it possibly can. That's basically how businesses view business. Uh, I don't, that's not how I was raised to think about good business. And it's definitely not how the open source software world works either. Um, you know, our idea of doing business is to create a, a great product that people can use, right? Because it doesn't cost us any extra to produce another unit of start OS. Start OS is just a piece of software. So yeah. us charging for it would be artificial. It would be us oddly trying to constrain information for our own sort of extortionary purposes, which is just this awful, sickening idea. So start OS is free, have at it. The only thing that we can build a business on is our reputation and our service. So we're actually not selling a product as much as we are a service provider. We're just like yes. a team of experts that is going to help you use the thing that we built. You can have the thing for free, mm. but you're probably going to have some questions along the way. You're probably going to need some help along the way. You might have need for ancillary services. Like I mm. said, creating backups. Um, when ClearNet comes into play, like when people want to host domains on uh, run services and websites on like .com domains and stuff like that, which businesses want, we yeah. can also be of help there. Um, you know, there's lots of ways that we can help you use your server and improve the experience with your server, but you don't have to do any of them. It's purely opt-in. It's purely just like, oh yeah, I could do this on my own, but start nine is like great. And they help a lot and I'm happy to pay them a marginal fee per month to like watch my back and make sure I'm good. We think that a huge business can be made on that model. And that is a new way of thinking. Most people don't think mm. about businesses like that as being like giant businesses, but we do. I think that we can scale world-class support and you know opt in world-class support um, to be a very big business. Awesome, yeah, yeah, very impressive, Matt. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, we've spoken about like stuff. Anything else you wanna cover off before? Yeah, cause it's, yeah. I know you're I mean, short on time. Yeah. Yeah. I can clearly talk about this forever. And, you know, we, we didn't even touch the surface of what you can do with a home server yes. or, or like what our roadmap is going forward, especially as it pertains to like IOT and alternative mm -hmm. devices, like security cameras. And like, I mean, we have this whole world of um, potential and ideas uh, that please, read some of our literature, watch some other podcasts or anything. If you're listening to this, um, this was just an introduction. Hopefully it was a good one, but yep. uh, there's a lot out there. It's a deep rabbit hole. 
Yeah, and in, in saying that, I mean, if you do have time sometime probably in a week or two weeks time, I'd hope to like do round two. I mean, there's we, we haven't touched the marketplace, yeah. uh, like the marketplace that you guys have. Then there's the aspect of the community marketplace. I wanted to get your thoughts on AI, Nostra, oh, yeah. and <laughs> yeah, so. Well, I think this was a great introduction. And if anyone, um, you know, was captivated by it, then they'll show up for round two. Just call it round two and we'll. Yep. Let's do it. We'll do it yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Sounds great. Anytime, man. I just, I, it's very hard for me to block off like multi-hour blocks of time because I have two small children and a business to run. So it's yeah. very hard. I'm, uh, I don't have a lot of free time. So. No, no, no. That's awesome. Like this is a good chunk. Like people have good, uh, good. I mean, there's great information in this one. And then round two, they are probably the stick around for round two. Awesome. Sounds Thanks, good. man. Uh, hey, thank you. Thanks, guys, for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, all I ask is that you share it with one other person. And I also recommend that you use Podcasting 2.0 apps like Breeze or Fountain FM. I'll link them down below. This will help you earn Bitcoin while you listen, and it will also help support the show. Once again, thanks for tuning in. And I'll see you in the next one.